You have no idea what it's like to be detestable to every person you meet. To have everyone go out of their way to avoid you. To be blamed as a sinner who got what they deserved. When you know what you have done did nothing to justify this kind of treatment. People equate my whole life with a grotesque, contagious disease. They won't touch me. They show me no affection. They won't even acknowledge me, except to tell me to get away from them. I have no relationships. No one to talk to, not even my own family. My own parents have completely separated themselves from me. Could anyone possibly have a lonelier, more frustrating life than me? Why has God done this to me? You know, we're pretty ruthless in the ways that we treat those behaviors or appearances that are departures from the normal. When somebody doesn't quite look like we do, somebody doesn't quite act like we do, we pick on them. That's just the way human beings are, unfortunately, and kids are the worst. Kids will pick on anybody. They'll pick on you because of their name. They'll pick on you because your nose is too big. They'll pick on you because you're shorter than others or because you're taller than others or because you're fatter than others. You can't throw a ball as well as others. You can't run as fast as others. And I'm not just thinking about how we, what we refer to these days as bullying. Boy, that's become a topic, eh? The whole notion of bullying is huge in our world today. But I'm talk, not talking just about that. I'm just talking about run-of-the-mill banter, playing in the front yard, and all of a sudden some kid says to his best friend, you know, you got something hanging out your nose. And maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but we just make fun of each other, and we like to do that. Someone's clothes are out of style, or they have their hair out of place, or they say some words that are wrong. They have unusually large number of freckles, or their breath smells badly on one particular day. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. And we're just like that. We tend to say things. And you know what I mean because it's happened to you, hasn't it? Is there anybody here who hasn't at some point had somebody make fun of them for something? I can remember when I was in grade six, we were doing some kind of play. I don't remember what it was, but we were supposed to dress up in like um, Robin Hood era, okay? Like maybe 900 AD or something in England. And I, I put on a pair of green tights, and I looked good. But the problem was, I, I left the washroom after putting on these green tights, started walking down the hallway, and Karen Blessing, who I'd known since grade one, was standing behind me. She's walking down the hallway, too, and she kind of, she says it half out loud, half, half whispering, because she was kind of a friend, didn't want to embarrass me entirely. She says, Kelly, I can see your underwear through your green tights. And I had this shirt on that was supposed to cover me down below that portion of my body, but pff, didn't work. And so Karen is walking behind me, and there's other girls walking behind her, and they're looking at my underwear through my green tights. And I, I'm in grade six. This is not fun. So I sprint into the washroom, and I put my pants back on, and then I wore my pants through the dress rehearsal because I wasn't going to wear these green tights with my underwear showing through the green tights. Now, what do you think they would have done if I hadn't put the pants back on? 
Like I was probably already a laughingstock, but I'm sure it became, it would have been much worse had I not put the pants back on because we tend to pick on people who look a little bit different or doing something a little bit odd. I can think of another thing about myself that others could pick on, something having to do with my name. I won't tell you what this is because it's too much. I can't take it. I could tell you what it was, but then you'd start doing it, and then I couldn't stand it. It was, never, it was never discovered until I was a youth minister. I was a youth minister in Southern California, and one of the kids in the youth group, group started doing this with my name. I have never been the same. Nobody had ever done it up until then, but then they started doing it. The youth group, this caught on among them, of course. I, it drove me out of youth ministry. Um, I'm not serious, but... It was, it, was a, it was a bit of a traumatic event. Nobody had ever done that before, and all of a sudden they were doing it. We have things like that in our lives that bother us. Well, one of the things that we do when people act that way towards us, bully us in some way, is that we act out. In fact, I have a theory that outlandish behavior, and especially even sinfulness, comes oftentimes from issues having to do with relational self-esteem. In fact, even small bits of behavior that are departures from what we typically expect may, and let me stress may, find their source in issues with relational self-esteem. In other words, we respond to things that people do to us, the way they treat us, we respond in some ways which aren't always functional. And it's because we're not relating as well to people as we want to. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to relate well. And when all of a sudden that's not happening with you, we tend to act out. Now, I'm not saying that all acting out comes from this. That's obviously not the case. Sometimes brilliant children are bored in school, and that's why they act out. Sometimes they're labeled as undisciplined when really they're simply ahead of the class when it comes to their ability to comprehend concepts. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you wouldn't have a clue. Now, come on. Come on now. That was meant to be funny. Sometimes there are physical causes for people doing things that are odd is when someone lives with constant physical pain. And there are some of you I know who, ha- who live with constant physical pain, and that causes sometimes to act out in various ways. Hunger may cause people to steal. Intense itching might cause you to squirm in your seat. If you stay up all night long because you can't cope with life, it may cause you to sleep during a sermon. Fear may cause you to physically harm others. You know, when I can't see my computer screen, I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at the computer screen and I can't see it very well because I'm getting older and my eyes don't do all the things I want them to do. And sometimes my glasses don't help as much as I want them to. And so I'll pull my glasses down, and I'll peer at my screen, and I'll kind of move my head forward and squint, and I'm sure my mouth comes open at the same time. And right when I'm like that, looking at the screen is when somebody from the office staff walks in, and they invariably make fun of me for that. And, and if it's not that, then it's some other thing about getting old that I have to hear these days. I didn't used to have to hear this. Now, Jonathan comes on staff, and i got to hear how old I am. And let me say, all of you, again, can relate to this. Every one of us knows what I'm talking about. You know, you could be like Mary Poppins. What, what was true of Mary Poppins? She was practically perfect in every way. But even though that was the case, 
I'm sure someone could find something in Mary Poppins to give her something that would cause her self-esteem to take a hit. Because that's just the way we are. How many of you say things like this? You know, you say this to your spouse probably most often. I know so-and-so doesn't like me. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard that from somebody? I know so-and-so doesn't like me. And you may well have said that. I've had people say to me, so-and-so thinks you don't like them. And I guess because I'm the preacher, of course, people, you know, I, I walk by somebody and they, if I ignore them, then they think, oh, he doesn't like me. When really all that's happening is that on Sunday morning I've got 20 things to do and they're all on my mind and I happen to walk by you right at the moment that those are on my mind and it looks like I don't like you, but the fact is I love you all. And so don't for a moment think that I don't like you. But we will respond in that ways. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to be a leper in the first century in Israel? And you probably can't imagine it. So let me show you what that's like. I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 13. It's on page 79, by the way, in the Bibles that are underneath the seats. Leviticus 13... Page 79. And I want you to just read with me. This is amazing. What happens to people who have, (laughs) excuse me, who have some kind of skin disease. Page 79 in the Bibles under the seats, Leviticus 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a bright spot on his skin that may become an infectious skin disease, he must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. So first of all, if you develop a condition, they're going to take you to the second highest leader in the land. This is like in the United States going to the vice president, being called into their office because you have an infectious skin disease. The priest is to examine the sore on his skin, and if the hair in the sore is turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it's an infectious skin disease. When the priest examines him, he shall pronounce him ceremonially unclean. Can you imagine? You go into here to an audience with one of the highest officials in the land and the religious leader, in one sense, of the entire nation, and he looks at you in front of everybody else and says, You are unclean. Imagine that this isn't Israel, but this is today, and that's on the news. Everybody suddenly knows that you are the one who is unclean. Verse 4, if the spot on his skin is white but does not appear to be more than skin deep and the hair and it has not turned white, the priest is to put the infected person in isolation for seven days. So after they tell you that you are absolutely unclean, then they isolate you from everybody else and they put you in jail so that they can watch you for a while because you have a skin disease. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him, and if he sees that the sore is unchanged, it is not spread in the skin, uh, he is to keep him in isolation another seven days. So you're going in for 14 days no matter what. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him again. If the sore is faded and is not spread in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only a rash. So then all you have is the reputation of having been called before Aaron and then declared clean. But you're always going to be known as the one who was called in. 
The man must wash his clothes and he will be clean. Verse 7, but if the rash does not spread in his skin after he has shown himself to be the priest to be pronounced clean, he must appear before the priest again. The priest is to examine him, and if the rash is spread in the skin, he should pronounce him unclean. It's an infectious disease. Can you imagine? This is not just among your small group. This is not just your family. We're talking about the whole nation being made aware that you are an unclean individual. And why? Because you woke up one morning and you had a rash. I want you to look at verse 45. I could read the rest of this. It's all about uncleanliness and response to skin diseases. Look at verse 45. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkempt. Now, just think about this now. We ridicule people for their clothing. We ridicule people for their appearances. Let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean, because nobody wants to look at you. Remember the elephant man? I am a man. I am not an animal. And that's what we're talking about here. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. My goodness, what they did to people. By the way, I want you to look at verse 40. When a man has lost his hair and is bald, he is clean. Enough said. (laughs) Now I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1. This is on page 708 in your Bibles. That just think about what has happened to these people. Again, can you imagine what it's like to wake up one day with a rash and the next day the whole country is against you? And you are having to say, even to your own family, unclean, unclean, and they are rejecting you, and as it says, sending you outside the camp, banishing you from any kind of social interaction. And it becomes illegal for you now to relate to others. You are breaking the Mosaic law if you come in contact with other people. Aside from saying from a distance, unclean, unclean. That means no touch. That means no love. That means no expressions of kindness. You can imagine the ridicule. You can imagine the things that are said. You can imagine what it feels like to have people constantly, for whatever is the remainder of your life from the time that you contract this disease, reject you and scorn you and in some sense hate you. And remember in this culture, what did they think of those who had various affirmities? That they had them because they were sinners. Remember the man born blind in John 9? Is it his father and his mother who sinned, or did this man sin? Is that why he was born blind? 
And so the only conclusion that people would reach is if you've got this kind of infirmity, this kind of disease that sends you as a total outcast from everybody else, it must be because of your sin. So there's so much piled on this man, it's unbelievable. Verse 40 of chapter 1. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees. And you can imagine what would drive him to his knees and to this begging posture. He's heard about this one. He's heard that he heals people. And if there's anybody in the country, in the nation, who would want to be healed, it would be this man. If you are willing, he says. And you can hear in that comment the attempt at at trying to get this man to have some sense of sympathy, trying to extract from Jesus some sense of compassion. The man humbles himself absolutely by going to his knees and then saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus, filled with compassion, reached out his hand and touched the man. Oh, how long it had been since someone had touched the man. How long it had been since he had some act of grace and love and compassion come his way other than ridicule and scorn. Jesus reaches out and touches the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Now you can imagine that at that point there was amazing joy. I don't know what it would feel like to all of a sudden have the leprosy just go away. And to feel your, your limbs, your nerve endings, your appearance, your face, everything about you suddenly restored to what it had been intended to be from the beginning. The joy that would be inside this man as he would sense the cleansing that was taking place. And all the years, and all the pain, and all the scorn, and all the ridicule, it wouldn't be washed away at that moment. But so much of the hurt would suddenly be gone. And then I want you to think about this for a moment. It's not just the man's joy. Jesus, the creator of the universe the one who is the Lamb of God, who from eternity the plan was for Him to come and restore humankind, you know that Jesus knew what He was going to do before He ever did it. In fact, Jesus had known from eternity what He was going to do to this individual on this day. And then He comes and does it. And I can, ma- I can imagine the joy that's in Jesus as he approaches the man, as the man approaches him, and he knows what he's about to do. Because nothing would give Jesus more joy than to take a leper who had been absolutely scorned by everyone and to embrace him and touch him and restore him 
and know exactly what he was going to do for this person. Oh, I can imagine that Jesus was filled with joy as he comes to the leper and knows what he's about to do to absolutely restore someone's life. I love the notion that Jesus would be filled with joy in that way. Here's some things I want us to think about this morning. First, nothing would set you apart, nothing would make you a social outcast like being a leper. He had been this way for I don't know how long, but whatever it is that he experiences, he's experienced it long enough that he now risks everything by coming and kneeling down before Jesus As we said, it was absolutely against the law. He's breaking just about every social, every religious, every legal parameter that there is. He should not be approaching a teacher. He shouldn't converse with anyone at all except to say, unclean, unclean. And here he is coming before this one that so many people are saying is the Messiah. Perhaps the most holy man in their eyes. Of course, we know that he was. But perhaps the most holy man ever in the history of Israel. And he has the gall to approach him. And it's all because of what he had previously heard about and seen in Jesus. And so if you are a person today who in any way has experienced great pain and great hurt, I want you to know something. Jesus wants to help you too. Jesus wants you to to bless you. He wants to be there for you. Jesus is the one who understands that people hurt. He understands that sometimes people act in ways which are in response to the things that they've experienced. And he wants to heal them and bless them with his love and his mercy. You know, people do unordinary things when they hurt. Sometimes they're loud. You've met people like this. Sometimes they draw attention to themselves. Sometimes they dress strangely. Sometimes they do things that intentionally set them apart. Sometimes they harm themselves. Sometimes they harm others. Sometimes they take out their pain on society and are simply mean. They try to overcome ways that are absolutely bizarre. Sometimes they simply become outlaws. Sometimes they take the lives of others. And sometimes they take their own lives. Sometimes they become terrorists. Sometimes they just go away alone. And I want you to know that if you are a person, you don't have to be to that extreme. But if you're a person who hurts in some way, that our Lord Jesus wants to touch you. He wants to bless you. He wants to heal you. He wants to make your pain go away. Nothing would set you apart like being a social outcast, like being a leper. And Jesus goes to this one and heals him. I also want us to see, and I know this is the case. Go ahead. That pain, especially social pain, hurts. And that's, therefore, something we can't take lightly. And in response to this, first Jesus does something, but then we need to do some things as well. And here we go. Here are some things that we need to really understand. First, go ahead, please. 
This is brand new, unless I got the old one. (laughs) In Jesus, God in the flesh, all the fullness of God in bodily form, we find one who acts with compassion. Jesus does act in compassion. And so if you're going to put Jesus somewhere in the rankings of those who are in the religious world who start religious and start people thinking about religious things, Jesus, as one who is filled with compassion, should be one we should take note of. We should see him actually at the top of the charts in terms of love and compassion for others because that's exactly how he lived. And Jesus, therefore, is worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our praise. But also... This means that our creator, the God of the universe, wants to be there when you hurt. He wants to bless you. He wants to heal you. He wants to show his compassion to you. And again, I say if you're a hurting person today, this is the place to go. This is the person to come to. Now, at the same time, coming to him and coming to his people won't mean anything if his people then don't respond with the same kind of compassion and love that he had. And so next slide. As those who follow the way of Jesus, we have a responsibility to respond like Jesus to those who hurt. We simply do. You know yourself the ways in which you have contact with people who are a bit different or people who might demand your time, people who might request something from you, people who might try to relate to you, to be your friend, when you don't at first blush think, I want to be their friend. But Jesus is calling us as people who are saying that we're going to minister in the way that Jesus ministered to treat people like that with the same kind of compassion and love with which he treats them. Well, that means some things for us. And just go ahead and just go through them. It takes away our tendency to judge. It takes away our tendency to hold prejudice. It takes away our tendency to be rude. It takes away our tendency to be unkind. It takes away our tendency to act superiorly. It takes away our tendency to be separate or to segregate. It takes away our tendency to be repulsed. It takes away our tendency to be cliquish takes away our tendency to just think of others as different. All these things are ways in which we often hesitate to treat people well. And these tendencies in our lives, the example of Jesus, should take from us this privilege. And that's what it is. We're the privileged ones who don't experience these things in life. And it's so easy for us to treat others who are not as privileged as we are in ways that are not respectful and not loving and not kind. And instead, it does something else. It does these things. All of a sudden, we can be filled with compassion. We can care. We can reach out to others. We can love. We can have tenderness. And on through the list, touch, relationality, sacrifice for these people, warmth, risk, seeing others with the eyes of Christ, ministering to, uh, <coughs> ministering to others in the way of Christ. All of these things suddenly become possible to those people who recognize 
that they need to minister in the way of Jesus. You know, right now, there probably isn't a person in the room who can't think of some person that they need to minister to in a significant way and from whom they have allowed themselves to be distant. And so whom, go, go, go ahead and go back to that one. Whom do you need to treat differently? And how will you treat them? And you're thinking of somebody right now. How would Jesus treat them? How will you treat them? And then lastly, in terms of a question for this morning, how should the example of Jesus lead you to treat not just the person that you're thinking of, but everybody that you meet who is challenged in some way and whose life has become, in many cases, just bitter event after bitter event because of the things that have befallen them and of which they have no control. I am so grateful that Jesus, our Lord, left us an example of one who would love with compassion and treat well those who were hurting in so many ways. And I pray that we can do the same. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy for us to treat others poorly. It is so easy for us to evaluate and to judge. It's so easy for us to keep those people when extra grace is required with those folks. It's so easy for us to keep them at arm's length. Every one of us, Father, has people that come into our lives that are opportunities for us to minister and to serve and to love and to whom we should show compassion. Sometimes we don't. Help us, Father, to treat them well. Help them to be treated by us like Jesus. Fill our hearts with compassion and love. And, and help us to be filled with joy as Jesus was when we have opportunity to minister to those who are disadvantaged in some way. We pray today through Jesus. Amen.